then I began to fold that into the doctrine of Bible economics, which is where I am today. And it says a lot about all the components of what I think is a perfect investment plan. Invest in God's word first, invest in God's work second, and the combination of investing in God's word and his work yields God's wealth, which is eternal. Welcome to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. If you're a fund manager, investor, or financial advisor driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected in the Faith Driven Investor community is to sign up for our newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community. One of the things we've heard the community ask us for is help in finding great deals to invest in. And so we've launched Marketplace. It's a new platform of funds and direct deals. Everything from private equity and real estate funds to ETFs. From philanthropic to market rate deals spanning in the U.S. and emerging markets. Check it out at faithdriveninvestor.org forward slash marketplace. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you have about being a faith-driven investor. All opinions expressed on this podcast, including the team and guests, are solely their opinions. Host and guest may maintain positions in the companies and securities discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as specific investment advice for any individual or organization. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. I'm here with my buddy, my partner, great friend, Luke Roush. Welcome, Luke. It's good to be on. It's good to be on as always. Luke, I think we're actually recording this video because we've got Ovi McKenzie on and we're going to be using a segment of this, I believe, for the Faith Driven Investor Conference that's coming up here. Not to time date this too much, but for those of us who are watching this on video, we've all known that we get to learn a lot about somebody from the background they have in Zoom land. So what's on somebody's walls tells you a lot about themselves, you think at least, but you've got this epic, epic landscape behind you. What is that and why do you have it? It's actually a landscape from um, where my wife's family lives in Montana. So uh, we've got, uh, we had a piece of property out there for a while and uh, just actually recently got rid of it. But um, it's a wonderful part of the country and it's a place that absolutely speaks to my soul. So love going to the in-laws. That's a good spot. I love being up there in Bozeman too. Um, We've got a really special guest today. We've got the first kind of multi-generational element to any of the podcasts we've done. We've gotten to know Obi's daughter, Keisha, from her incredible work at Cloud Factory, one of our favorite companies ever, the way that they are able to blend excellence and scale and have a very thoughtful spiritual integration in their work. And Keisha is such a big part of that. We've got her dad today. And I've known Obi for a while now. It's been several years. And I got to know him in New York City. And Obi is and has been a leader on Wall Street for a long time. I mean, he is founding board member of the National Association of Securities Professionals. He is a guy that has been at the top tiers of Wall Street. He's a good friend of ours, you know, worked with Bob Dahl for a long time. Bob's been on the podcast, a great encouragement to this space and the movement and the different conferences we've done. And he's always said great things about Obi. There's so many different really cool things about Obi to include the fact that at any second he can break down or break out in song. And it's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. I've seen it happen before. And if I could sing as well as Obi, I'd sing all the time too. And he's got just a joyful heart. And what makes him the perfect guest for today is the fact that he's very, very thoughtful about his faith. And he's very, very thoughtful about what the Bible says about money. He is, and he's been called this, the Bible economist. So I can think of nobody better to have on the program. Obi, welcome. 
Well, thank you so much for having me this morning. And I wonder where you are. It's a beautiful background there. So I've seen the mountains and now I see flowers and a nice garden. You guys know how to do it. (laughs) No, we're very fortunate. I tell you, I'm doing this episode al fresco, as they say, in Northern California. We're recording this relatively early in the morning and the kids are still asleep. So I thought I'd go outside and hopefully I won't be dive bombed by some of these birds that are around here. Obi, you and I met in New York and I was introduced to you as the Bible economist. We're going to talk a lot about that, but one of the things we like to do with all the guests we have on is to have a little bit of biographical sketch. Who are you? Where do you come from? What brought you to being a Bible economist? Just tell us a bit about yourself, please. I'm a Southern boy by birth. I was born in Tennessee, to a family of sharecroppers in West Tennessee. And we moved to Indianapolis, Indiana when I was a very young boy. And as an African-American family, many African-American families left the South because we couldn't make a living picking cotton and moved North to find jobs. Many of us wound up in automobile factories in uh, Detroit and some of the other industrial centers to escape the inability to make enough money in the cotton belt to make a living. And so I grew out of that background. My father and mother stopped in Indianapolis, Indiana, where I grew up. I was educated in a multicultural high school there at Shortridge High School, Indianapolis, Indiana, participated in many entrepreneurial or extracurricular activities to include, you know, sports, music. I was good in academics, left there in the 60s and went to Tennessee State University in Nashville, Tennessee. And so I wound up going to Tennessee State, graduating there in 1967, and took a job in the Human Resources Department of Bethlehem Steel, where I went around the country recruiting engineers, civil engineers, electrical and mechanical engineers from around the country, the major engineering schools. Someone told me while I was at Bethlehem Steel that I probably ought to consider Harvard Business School. And I said, who, me? Harvard Business School? I couldn't even spell it. (laughs) So he helped me write my essays. And lo and behold, uh, I was accepted to Harvard Business School in 1970. I came from a working class family where we really didn't have a lot of money. We're a very humble background. So the whole idea of going to Harvard Business School, which, you know, I'd heard was a West Point of capitalism, was really kind of far-fetched from my dinner table. But I did wind up at Harvard Business School and fell in love with the subject of finance, probably because we just never had very much money. But uh, I wanted to understand what this thing was called money. So I began to study finance. And even though I wasn't a quant, I was very good at conceptualizing ideas. So I would start with the concept and work back to the formula. And I did pretty well. And as a matter of fact, wound up tutoring a lot of my classmates in finance while I was there. And so I left Harvard Business School in 1972 and became the second African-American hired in the corporate finance department at Morgan Stanley. There was no such thing back in those days. Morgan Stanley was white shoes, roll top desk, polished brown shoes with blue suits and doing spreadsheets with slide rules. And that's where I started my financial life in a bullpen, working all night long on a spreadsheet, which if in fact it wasn't correct, and a senior partner found a number in the middle of the spreadsheet the next day, 
He would throw it in the garbage, even though you had been up all night with a slide rule trying to put a spreadsheet together. With a so slide rule? A slide rule, yeah. I mean, these young people today, you know, they can push a button and do a spreadsheet, and they have valuation models and algorithms, and all of these valuation models and algorithms and, and spreadsheets were done with a slide rule. Wow. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and it better be right, and you better have the right attitude when, in fact, you presented it to a senior partner the next day. After being up all night reading prospectuses at Bound Printing, you better come back to work the next morning by seven with a smile on your face. And don't scowl if, in fact, you found something wrong with the spreadsheet because he would discard it and you'd have to start again. So mm -hmm. I came up the rough side of the mountain in finance, but I'm happy that I did. It gave me discipline that I have been benefiting from since my days at Morgan Stanley. So I left Morgan Stanley through a, the next, oh, I say 20, 25 years has been spent in a variety of positions in the financial services community to include commercial banking with Citibank, international banking with then what was Chemical Bank, which no longer is, as you know, assistant treasurer, New York Times newspaper, senior vice president, Freedom National Bank, a senior credit initial I had my own broker-dealer, McKinsey & Company, as the first African-American sole proprietor broker-dealer on the street. And then I left. I joined Bob Dahl at Merrill Lynch, given that Merrill Lynch and Chase Investors. I left Chase Investors, went to Merrill Lynch, and Bob Dahl was president of Merrill Lynch Investment Managers. And I raised money for Merrill Lynch Investment Managers. Along came BlackRock, bought Merrill Lynch Investment Managers. I went with that group as a managing director with BlackRock. BlackRock, as you know, is the largest institutional asset manager in the world. I've been blessed to be a part of teams to raise probably 30 to $40 billion of institutional assets to be managed across a number of asset classes. I stayed in that for 18 years. I left BlackRock about two and a half years ago to become now, uh, they said I was going to retire, but I tell them if Phobie is retired, ask where he's buried. I don't, I just, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so I was blessed to take a position with Cordian Capital in Montreal, where I work now. I am a part of that. Basically, I put OBL McKenzie LLC together as an advisory business, and then I developed verticals for cash flow with the likes of Cordian Capital which is a uh, infrastructure debt platform out of Montreal and then established relationships with Stern Brothers, which is a hundred year old woman owned company in St. Louis. So I'm allowed to do brokerage and investment banking. So effectively the model is OB McKenzie LLC in the middle with a number of verticals where I provide advisory services, strategy, business development, and a number of other things. Now the intersection of OB professionally and Bible economics started many years ago when I ran into Crown Ministries and I discovered that there are 2,300 scriptures in the Bible about money. And that really piqued my curiosity. Again, being from a humble background and a Christian family, the whole idea that the Bible actually had something to say about money was very interesting to me. So many, many years ago, I started studying the Bible. I became a Bible teacher at Canaan Baptist Church in Harlem. I was inspired by a preacher out on the West Coast named Fred Price, who recently passed away, God rest his soul. Uh, and he inspired me. He was an expository 
Bible teacher who really took some of the these and thous out of his delivery in a way that I understood what it was saying, what it meant, and more importantly, what it meant to me. And so as I began to teach, I went to a retreat as a part of uh, a Canaan Baptist church. And they had asked me, this is many years ago, it asked me to teach some passages from the book of Galatians. And I said, again, who, me? I really hadn't done a lot of study. Now, I said, I really started studying the Bible years ago, and I became a Bible teacher. And then that exploded while I was at Canaan Baptist Church. And I discovered that that the Lord had given me a gift of expository teaching and that I had a gift of gritting scripture. And my daughter, I'll never forget, she was 13. She used to carry my Bible to church and she used to listen to me teach. And she said, Daddy, what do you, what's the difference in the way you teach and the rest of the people? What's the difference in you and, and them? I said, well, I believe it. They believe about it. And she said, oh, that's, yeah, Daddy, what's that mean? I said, well, I believe it down deep in my heart. I believe what I'm saying. I don't just believe about it. It's just not words. I believe it. And so it was very important to her to understand what the difference was and why people were reacting to the teaching that the Holy Spirit was giving me the way they were. I also learned during those periods that I wasn't really doing the teaching. I had to make a fool of myself a number of times being so absolutely sure I was right that I was wrong and that I was humbled by little old ladies who had been studying Bible for many, many years and were not you know, Harvard trained. They were Holy Ghost trained. <laughs> and they used to pull me in the back of the church and say, Brother McKenzie, we want to talk to you. Uh, you know what you said about this or that. And by the way, we'd like for you to keep your jacket on while you're teaching. We don't like you taking your jacket off while you're teaching. So, <laughs> so those little old ladies used to straighten me out. Well, after that, I went to New York Theological Seminary for a minute a hot minute. And interestingly enough, I wound up on the board later in years, New York Theological Seminary. But back in that time, I didn't stay in seminary because I felt from what that particular seminary, if you didn't have Jesus when you went, you certainly wouldn't have Jesus when you left. <laughs> and so they were so theological. I didn't feel that there was any Holy Spirit there. I felt that there was a lot of learning there, but not a lot of burning there. And so that was many years ago. So fast forward, I began to get more and more immersed in what the Bible had to say about money. And knowing that I lived in a money environment. And when I really started digging into the fact that there were 2,300 scriptures in the Bible about money, and fewer than the 500 or so about faith, and fewer than the 500 or so about love, and the fact that over 15 or thereabouts of Jesus's parables use money as a subject to reveal spiritual truth, it really got me started on becoming what some people refer to as a Bible economist, and that's who I am today. And what is that? A friend of mine who is a scholar in Greek told me that the word I think the economia meant economy, keeper of the laws of the house, stewardship. And so as I really began to dig into the word of God, which I believe is between Genesis and Revelations, I do believe that it is God breathed. I do believe that it is uh, irrefutable. 
And it's very difficult for many to understand where I'm coming from if, in fact, they don't believe that the Bible is irrefutable. Just so you know where I'm coming from, I believe that the word is the Logos, who is Jesus, who stepped out of eternity into time to show us how we ought to live to be reclaimed to God, which is his purpose for man, is to reclaim us back unto himself. And so I find that the roadmap for that reclamation is between Genesis and Revelations, and I walk by faith and not by sight. Now, over many years, what I've had to come to is that there was a difference between believing God's word in my head and believing God's word in my heart. So I have been for many years trying to close the gap between my head, my mouth, and my heart. And so I have had to work real hard in making sure that what comes out of my mouth is what is in my heart. What we believe becomes what we say. What we say becomes what we do. What we do becomes our habits. Our habits become our character, and our character becomes our destiny. So somewhere along the line, I began to understand that there was very important what I believed, my point of view. And so I always begin with letting people know what my point of view is and where I stand, so they will know, frankly, whether or not we can communicate at all or whether we're speaking, you know, I'm speaking English and they're speaking French or we're just speaking a different language. Yes. And so, yes. so I had to, as I have matured, I hope, I have become less arrogant about what it is I think I know or what I thought I knew. I realized that God is omnipotent, yes. And for me, God is omnipresent. He's in all. And he's omniscient. He knows all. So if God knows all, how can I know anything? The only way I can know anything is to borrow from the all-knowing library of the great I am and hope that my ego... And my little pea brain will let me comprehend what it is I'm trying to know and hoping that I listen and I'm listening to God and I'm not listening to Obi. So this whole walk for me has been uh, an effort to de-egoize, if you will, Obi, to say, hey, look, pal, you got a Harvard degree, but I had to work on my other H and that's my Holy Ghost degree. I had to really understand that when Jesus left the earth and went back to sit at the right hand of Father God to make intercession for those of us who believe in him and that have confessed him and have him in our heart, that he said, I have given them thy word. He gave us, Logos, the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God. He came to dwell among us, and we looked at him but didn't understand it. So he was and is the word, the Logos. And so I had to try to really peel back my ego to the point where I really believed what I was reading, that I really understood that it was God-breathed and that it was good for instruction. It was good for direction. It was good for everything. And so then... 
I began to fold that into the doctrine of Bible economics, which is where I am today. And it says a lot about all the components of what I think is a perfect investment plan. Invest in God's word first. Invest in God's work second. And the combination of investing in God's word and his work yields God's wealth, which is eternal. Invest in God's word first. Invest in God's work second. And the combination of investing in God's word and his work will yield God's wealth, which is eternal. Mm. The other thing I had to realize and really accept, Psalms 24 is really the beginning of Bible economics. It's very difficult to cross into the concept of Bible economics until you really understand that the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. Everything in it there is belongs to him, including you and me. And if we belong to him, and if the earth belongs to him, if the world belongs to him, then he ought to have something to say about what we do with his stuff. And so in Matthew 6.33, I think it's 6.33, but you know where it is. It says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We've got it backwards. We seek the stuff rather than seeking God first. The things will come if, in fact, you turn it around. There's a counterculture relationship between man's economy and God's economy. This is what I mean. Man's economy seems to be motivated by self-interest, greed. The objective is money. God's economy, on the other hand, is motivated by love. The objective is abundant life in the here and eternal life in the hereafter. Both economies are in pursuit of a contented life, but one gets you there and the other one doesn't. Let me say that again. Two economies. Man's economy is motivated by greed, self-interest. The objective is money. God's economy is countercultural to that, is motivated by love. The objective is abundant life in the here and eternal life in the hereafter. The Bible teaches, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Matthew, Luke 6.38. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Not get. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For as you give, it shall be given unto you. God gives to you so you can give, so he can give to you again, so you can give again. The irony of it all is Satan, who was kicked out of heaven after having been the head of the praise ministry, is here to kill, steal, and destroy, that is his job on earth. Every single day is to steal, kill, and destroy. And the place he does that best is in your mind. That's where he works. That's why the Bible teaches to put on the full on the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation, which is where your mind is, okay? You can put on a breastplate. You can do anything. You can dress up in any anything you want. But if your mind is exposed to thoughts that are not of God, that's where you get killed because that's where Satan gets you. If you don't think that it's important to fight back with Scripture, look what Jesus did. When Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights exposed to Satan, he was hungry, so he was vulnerable. And Satan said, hey... <laughs> I got you. Why don't you come on up here? I'll give you some power. 
money. I'll give you stuff. Jesus responded with scripture. He responded with Deuteronomy 8.3. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8.3. Whoa, you mean to tell me Jesus was using scripture to fend off attacks from Satan? Well, if he does, why shouldn't we? If it's about what would Jesus do, we see what he did. He used scripture. And then when Jesus left and went back to Father God to make intercession for you and me, he said, I have given them thy word. Thy word is true. Now that rolls into what the Bible has to say about money because it's true. It's irrefutable because scriptures are irrefutable. And by the way, when we doubt the fact that scripture is irrefutable, we're questioning, frankly, God's integrity because it's either true or it isn't. So I have to ask myself, are you challenging the integrity of God when you don't trust that the word is true? I think, yeah. I think, yeah. So when I read Deuteronomy 8.18, where it says that God gives you the power to get wealth, that his covenant might be established upon the face of the earth. What covenant? God gives us wealth that we might do his will on earth as a proof statement for the covenant relationship that we have with him. And that is regardless of what we do in business, whether it is budgeting, saving, investing, or giving. That's my four pillars for business activity, budgeting, saving, investing, and giving. Budgeting, saving, investing, and giving. Given it shall be given unto you good measure. So as you give, it will be given unto you. And that's what he wants us to do because we're walking by faith in the reality of his word, which is motivated by love, which means to give and not to get. And that's, you know, I could go on about the scriptures that are Bible, the silver and the gold belong to God, Haggai. You know, yeah. don't be too impressed with yourself again, Deuteronomy. Uh, seek ye first, Matthew. Obi, as you talk about Deuteronomy 8.18 uh, and talk about managing the wealth that God has entrusted us with for his purposes, help us understand a little bit more practically about what does that look like? What does that look like in your life? I think that at some level, and to be clear, it's awesome to hear you unpack it. And it just is more of a conviction for me about God's word. And then also just the opportunity we have to to participate in what he's doing with Matthew 6.33. But when we get to practical purposes about stewarding that wealth, what do you think that looks like? And maybe the answer is that it's not always the same for each person, but how do you as an individual? Well, I, I can, I can answer, that. That answer that very simply. I believe that there are multiple gifts in the body of Christ. As you all, you Bible scholars know that there's four lists of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. There are a couple in first Corinthians, one in Ephesians and one in Romans. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are to edify the church. And one of the gifts is, you know, we know the gifts of helps, prayer, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes gifts of prophecy, gifts of preaching, all these different gifts. But everybody has a gift or gifts. And so I have been in search of my gift. My gift, I have a gift of teaching and a gift of helps and a gift of song. And so I take those gifts to try to line up with God's will for my life. So one has to ask oneself, what is God's will for my life? What is my purpose? 
every one of us has a purpose. We had a purpose before we were born, Jeremiah 29, 11. We were destined to do certain things while we were here. And we are all either vocally or otherwise in search of what that purpose is. And when what we're doing lines up with God's purpose for our lives, there's no traffic in the lane. You will know because you'll know in your knower. Now, what does that mean to me practically? I've spent over 50 years in financial services and 30 plus years studying Bible. And part of my purpose is exactly what's happening here is to take the message that God has given me and give it back. But on a practical level, and this is practical, I am vice chairman of a infrastructure debt platform in Canada, which makes loans that have impact on people's lives to multi-generational families that are not being banked by the banks and don't want to do private equity offerings. And so at the table, when I structure a deal in my uh, or help to structure a deal, my concerns are whether or not it has the quantitative metrics to reflect an impact on the lives of those who are less fortunate. For example, I'm supposed to have an interview today, frankly, about this hour with Avanti Communications. Avanti Communications is a satellite company out of London whose mission, part of his mission is to get into rural Africa with internet connectivity to unlock the genius in the minds of those who do not. Africa has millions and millions of people, and there are millions of them that do not have broadband connectivity. And cable does not reach certain rural regions. And as a result, the satellite is probably a more effective way of connecting broadband to people who really need to be supported educationally, agriculturally, economically, et cetera. Without that connectivity, the genius that is there is not unlocked. That's just one practical way that I am currently involved. I'm an impact investor now, and I have taken my financial skills from my fundamental finance and gotten involved in initiatives that have a double bottom line, and they're not mutually exclusive. You do not have to leave your IRR and your MOIC off the table when, in fact, are engaged in business activities that have a social impact that's in line with what God would want to happen. In as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. Jesus's peeps are the least. That's everybody. And so uh, to the extent that on a practical level, I can make some modest contribution by bringing a different way of thinking about a transaction to the table, then I have fulfilled part of my purpose and I've taken some of the gifts that God has given me and planted them on a practical level, i.e. to produce IRR and MOIC and do it again, but at the same time, bringing other people along to benefit from that. So the coordinate capital, vice chairman there, and I am also being interviewed for a non-executive board directorship at Avanti Communications. And they're both situations that allow for impact. And I could go into several other practical examples of what that can mean. What would your encouragement, just as I think about biblical economics and just the way that Wall Street is perceived, maybe from the outside, 
I mean, 20 years at BlackRock at the most senior level of what Wall Street does with a real deep understanding of what the Bible says about money and now identifying kind of this new evolution. Let me ask a question. How would you see impact investing having changed over the last 10 years? And then what would your encouragement be to other managers who maybe find themselves where you were 15, 20 years ago at a key role in a key bank? What would your encouragement to them be to practically implement in terms of how their faith manifests? I think that the whole concept of purpose-driven investing has evolved enormously over the last 10 years. I think that more and more people have lived in corporate America long enough to feel that the whole idea of looking for purpose, for example, Larry Fink, who was my boss, he was, you know, chairman and CEO of BlackRock, has written to many investors about purpose and about impact. I mean, his letters go out every year, and one of his most significant, most impactful letters as recent as the last couple of years was on purpose. And so I think there's a much more corporate conversation about purposeful living that's occurred. Uh, you said use 10 years as a timeline, but it's still evolving. Now, of course, we when purpose and impact and ESG hit the market, there are always charlatans around who use that as a catchword to attract capital and to continue doing what they're doing. And we call that impact washing or ESG washing. But as we've evolved, we have learned to identify metrics and keep records of those metrics and checks and balances on the metrics to know who really is an impact investor and who isn't. So if you ask me how it's evolved, it's continuing to evolve. You've got, you know, back there, you had the UN responsible investor principles. And then, you know, you have the establishment of GEN, Global Impact Investors uh, Network, and then IRIS, and then the IFC, and then, you know, sustainability jumped in there. And then people started debating the difference between ESG impacts and sustainability. So it is a road under construction, but it's a good road because now there are more and more people that are talking about it. And given that I've had a heart for the right side of my being as well as the left side, they stepped into my wheel well, which is, you know, caring about somebody else other than just myself. Thank you. That's helpful. I think that your commentary around impact and ESG and how some of that has evolved in the last 10 years. It's become more professionalized and it's also a a topic that I think a lot of CEOs are now paying attention to. And, you know, how BlackRock thinks about ESG is oftentimes similar, but oftentimes different than other firms. And I think there's more and more understanding of how different capital providers uh, think through those issues and things that they care about that maybe once were, were not on the radar. So it's a hugely timely topic. Now, the one thing I, I skipped over that really has been a major milestone for me, and that is I learned that Obi was depending on the size of his stock portfolio and 401k to represent security for me. And as that sometimes will ebb and flow, and occasionally it will dissipate in a big way between deals or between situations. And what I've had to learn, first, I didn't know just how much I was depending on my 401k, the level of my savings, my investment portfolio for security. And 
during those times when I didn't know what to do and I was crying out in my heart for help from Jesus Christ, I learned as my bank account went down, my trust level, I don't know how I could possibly feel better when my bank account went down than it was when it was a lot more robust. And in the middle of that battle, I learned to trust Jesus. I learned to trust God. I learned to know. I found out that the Lord is my shepherd, is real personal, that he is my shepherd. He maketh me. He restoreth my soul. And if I would bungee jump with the reality of the word that he's got me, that he will supply all my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus, that I would be freer, that I would feel more secure, that I would have more peace in knowing in my knower for real in my heart that he got me. He got me. Whether my bank account is up or whether it's down, he got me. And so that, frankly, is a, a recent phenomenon that I thought I'd already, I'd already jumped that hurdle. I thought I had. But I hadn't really until I got smacked a little bit again. And I prayed and called out to him, and he answered. I heard him. I'm a walking testimony that God answers prayer. And if you will trust him and trust what his word says... It's an incredible wealth. My wealth is in my relationship with him. My wealth is in how much I can trust him. My faith in him is my wealth. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. We're very, very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven investor community. Hey, the best way for you to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. And while you're there, we, of course, want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people join the discussion now from all around the world. But it's also very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and one that you'll share with others. This podcast, it wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends. Executive producer, Justin Foreman. Program director, Johnny Wills. Music by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com. And audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. Mm-hmm.